And while you might not know how much money your neighbor makes, you might not know even what their social background is, you do know through the process of the national conversation in politics whether your group, a group that you belong to, is thought of as second-class citizens. And it's this attempt to ground a, a, a serious study, a rigorous study of inequalities of citizenship that um, I want to bring to, um, the, to the political science conversation. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Tonight's speaker, Dr. Tudor, um, uh, when when we first met uh, to discuss the potential of her speaking here, it became really clear that um, that she embodies uh, an aspect of long now, which we talk about here sometimes. It's it's the big here. It's the it's the corollary with the long now. If you know the story, uh, it it stems from, uh, and you should look up uh, Brian Eno's essay of the big here and the long now. Um, a realization that when we are too focused on um, where we are, our very near um, locales, and not thinking about a larger world, um, we are um, limiting the potential, the understanding, and then and, and the possibility that we can have uh, in, our, in our lives and, and, and as this greater human uh, cooperative effort around the planet. So. Um, Brian said, Brian Eno said, I want to live in a bigger here and a longer now. Um, what you'll find tonight uh, is that Maya Tudor's work and actually her life uh, are something that inherently span the geographies and, and offer her a, a perspective which she's uh, uh, digging into and, and learning more about to share with us tonight. Um, a truly kind of a global, truly a big here kind of perspective. Uh, Perspective. So, without any further ado, please give a big round of applause for tonight's speaker, Maya Tudor. All right. Um, good evening, and um, thank you to the Long Now for inviting me and um, to um, Margaret for being my discussant. I'm really delighted to be here and to have an opportunity to talk about my new book project. So um, unlike some of my colleagues at CASA, some of whom are here tonight, um, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm really at the beginning of this exciting new project. So the topic of my uh, talk tonight is whether nationalism can be a resource for democracy. But before I tell you about my research, I want to do a little bit of research right here, right now. Um, so I'd like you all to just close your eyes for a moment and to raise your hands if you consider yourself to be a nationalist. All right, keeping your eyes closed, please raise your hand if you would consider yourself committed to democratic institutions. All right, thank you. So as I suspected, um, we had three hands raised to describe themselves as a nationalist. So most of you do not think of yourselves as nationalists. And the vast, vast majority of you think of yourselves as Democrats, Democrats with a small d, committed to democratic institutions. And that I suspect that part of the reason you don't think of yourself as a nationalist, or most of you don't think of yourself as a nationalist, is because you think that you have a particular vision of nationalism, what that means in your mind, and that you think of that, at least in some respects, as inimical to democracy. And over the next half an hour, I hope to convince you that, at least in part, you're wrong about some of those associations. So Michael alluded to my personal story, so I thought I'd start by, by telling you a little bit about myself. So I got interested in questions of nationalism in part because I'm sort of remarkably confused about my own national identity. You might think of me as American, I sound American, but I was actually born um, in India to an Indian father with an Indian passport. Um, 
but I spoke, my, my mother tongue was German, so I spoke German with my German mother, who lived at the time in India. So I was born with two citizenships, and if that wasn't confusing enough, when my parents, um, my parents' marriage broke up, my mother remarried an American who adopted me, thereby giving me American citizenship. Um, you can see the pattern here with the flags that you see. Um, I then went to American schools, but mostly not in the United States, but abroad, um, and did most of my schooling in the United States. But about a, a decade ago, actually exactly a decade ago, I moved to the United Kingdom, um, where I've lived for the past decade, giving me the right to yet another nationality. But if, like me, you'd been in England last summer, you wouldn't have seen the Union Jack flag flying, you would have, in fact, seen the English flag flying, because the World Cup was being played last summer. So, um, I'm kind of, I, my personal story in many ways epitomizes the, um, the sense I, I, that uh, I have from my research that national identities are in some sense fictive. But um, as I hope to return to at the end, I think that can actually be quite a hopeful story. But if I am a kind of multiplicity, a hodgepodge of national identities, um, I'm going to tell you about the story, the personal story of my family. Um, and that's actually a particular story of my two grandfathers. Um, and they don't have a hodgepodge of national identities. They were very much rooted in one place and at one time. So this is a picture here of my German grandfather. Um, here he is here on his wedding day to my, my grandmother. Um, and he was somebody who was um, completely uninterested in politics. Um, he wanted to be a linguist, um, but as um, was the case, as he was the eldest of five children, he didn't really have a choice in the matter in Weimar, Germany. He needed to take a job to support his family, um, help support um, his, his five siblings, uh, which he did. Um, and though he was very uninterested in politics and didn't join a political party um, and didn't really want his life to be defined by nationalism, it was defined by nationalism, as many of you will know. Um, Germany of the 1940s was very much defined by nationalism. And it's that kind of nationalism, led by leaders like this, that you probably have in your minds when you think about this term, nationalism. So when most people think, they think of, again, of leaders like this and the mass mobilizations that they led, which led to the destruction of democracy um, in many of the countries um, in Europe at the time. And it was this historical legacy which led many of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, uh, or thinkers of the 20th century, to reject nationalism as a force to be embraced. So here you have, um, from left to right, Rabindranath Tagore, Virginia Woolf, and Albert Einstein, all Nobel Prize winners, maybe we should have Margaret up there as well, <laughs> um, rejecting the forces of nationalism. It, they really thought nationalism was something to be rejected, and they very much, in their other writings, hoped that nationalism would fall away in the future that they envisioned. But if this story of one of my grandfathers tells you about the ways in which nationalism can undermine or destroy democracy, the story of my other grandfather tells you a very different kind of story about the relationship between nationalism and democracy. And this is a picture of my Indian grandfather. Um, and you can see him here. He also, like my German grandfather, was completely uninterested in politics, didn't join a political party. Um, and yet, like my other grandfather, his life was in many ways um, upended by the forces of nationalism. He was... Um, he joined an Indian um, colonial India's educational institutions, was educated there, and through that opportunity um, joined the Indian Civil Service, which um, was, of course, run, ran India under British colonial rule, and was accused by um, some of his compatriots as actually being a traitor because he served um, essentially a colonial government. And as the forces of nationalism rose in his country, um, uh, it was a, a kind of nationalism that created democracy, but one which um, he held a kind of tenuous position. Um, and so when independence came, as it came in 1947 for India, um, he had to learn to serve essentially a new master. Um, and you can see a picture of him there in the center, um, essentially taking instructions from um, India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. 
So this story tells of a very different kind of relationship between nationalism and democracy, a kind of nationalism here that was actually used to create democracy, not to undermine it. And in fact, many of the greatest political leaders of the 20th century um, very much thought of themselves as nationalists. Here you see a quote from Gandhi who said, it's impossible to be an internationalist, to be, have commitments beyond one's nation if one is not first a nationalist. And indeed, uh, Nelson Mandela had a very similar um, perspective on nationalism. Although I am a nationalist, I am by no means a racialist. So he very much thought of himself as a nationalist, but he understood that there was a kind of nationalism that was not defined um, by racial identities. So when we think today about the forces of nationalism that are sweeping the globe, we think about these kinds of faces. We think about Trump, um, Le Pen, Orban, Xi Jinping, and Narendra Modi. And these leaders, in fact, do espouse a kind of nationalism that I and my research is showing is bad for democracy because the, kind, the conception of the nation that they espouse is a conception that's based on a particular, a fixed identity. And what that does is it creates um, for those individuals in the nation, and we all live in multi-ethnic, multi-religious nations now, it creates groups who don't have that core national identity and who are therefore thought of as outgroups that can be easily marginalized in times of crisis. But if we have these kinds of leaders today, as we do, there are also leaders, it's important not to forget, who do espouse nationalisms that are not based on racial, ethnic, religious, uh, uh, regional identities, but that are espouse a kind of nationalism that is based on creeds and principles. So it's the, the story, the contrast between my two grandfathers' lives and the contrast between these, the kinds of leaders I've just talked about that led me to my current research project. And that project is animated by the question, when is nationalism a resource for creating and protecting democracy, and when, alternatively, is it a resource for undermining it? So before I talk a little bit more about this project, um, I just want to spend a few moments on what I mean by these terms, because there are almost as many definitions of these terms as there are people who study them, and that's a lot. <laughs> so um, what is a nation? So three of the most um, uh, kind of celebrated thinkers of nationalism across three, the three different fields of philosophy, uh, sociology, and political science have called a nation an invented tradition, an imagined community, and lies that bind. So these very pithy definitions all share in common a conception of the nation as something that is, in a sense, fictive. It's imagined, and in some sense, it's not real. And of course, if you rewind the clock, that long now clock, back a couple hundred years, you wouldn't have seen nations as the predominant form, political form, um, across the globe at all. So it's, of course, in some sense, it has to be um, imagined because it hasn't always been around. Um, but if that's the definition of a nation, it's some sort of community, but it's an imagined one, then the ism of nation or nationalism, I call that, this is, this is really my definition, an identity binding together individuals who share a, large, a sense of large-scale political solidarity, often aimed at creating, legitimating, or challenging states. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple parts of that definition. So it isn't, first of all, an identity that binds. Just because it's fictive or imagined doesn't mean it isn't very real for pe in people's minds at any particular moment in time. It is a form of solidarity. So it does create an a, a, a community that is imagined. It is a community. It might not be a community for whom you never meet many of your co-nationals, but it is a community nonetheless. The second part of the definition that really matters here is that it's large scale. It's the largest scale at which we've been able to imagine that have that kind of solidarity for people we'll never meet, and in some cases, share very little in common with. And the third part of that definition that I want to draw your attention to is that it's very much associated with states, right? Nation states are often uh, 
put together in the same hyphenated clause for a reason, because states are the kind of, it's, you know, states and nations associated with them are perhaps um, the most universally um, legitimate political creed of our times. Um, and because nationalism is a resource for states, um, it's, it's something that we need to take, I think, um, much more seriously and study much more carefully. So if that's what nationalism is, the other uh, definition that I just want to talk a bit about is democracy. Um, it can mean very different things to different people. So I'm using it in a very um, political science uh, uh, way in which I centralize um, three components. So I think of democracy as a three-legged stool in which each of the stools is, um, is represented by first, elections, Second, competition that makes those elections meaningful. And third, a broad range of civil and political liberties for all citizens. Um, that includes the right to free speech, the right to assemble together, to articulate common interests, the right to protest, and, and the right to a media um, uh, through as a medium for, for having those discussions. Now, classically, political science has explained democracy through a whole range of structural explanations. I'm not going to talk about any of those explanations, and I'm very happy to take questions on them when the Q&A comes. Um, but notice that many of those explanations really focus on, on economics and on, on how, what the size of the middle class, on how wealthy the country is, on how much inequality or equality there is in the country, what the economy is based on in terms of um, exports and the like. Um, but there's very little discussion of status inequalities, of the ideas that make us unequal. The focus is very much on material factors. And while you might not know how much money your neighbor makes, you might not know even what their social background is, you do know through the process of the national conversation in politics whether your group, a group that you belong to, is thought of as second-class citizens. And it's this attempt to ground a, a, a serious study, a rigorous study of inequalities of citizenship that um, I want to bring to, um, the, to the political science conversation that I have um, with my colleagues. So, the core hypotheses that I'm developing in my research are that an inclusive national narrative, one that's based on creeds, um, ideas, principles, as some of you have read um, Fukuyama's recent work on identity, he calls this creedal nationalism, that that, all else being equal, helps actually to support democracy. Whereas an exclusive national narrative, one that's based on fixed identities of race, religion, caste, ethnicity, religion being fixed in most parts of the world as an identity, um, undermines democracy, all else being equal. And before I kind of unpack those hypotheses and what I'm doing to research and, 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 and test these, um, I want to I wanted to spend um, a moment on two questions I often get asked when I present this research. So the first question is, am I not really collapsing the distinction between patriotism and nationalism, right? So isn't patriotism kind of all the good stuff about feeling love for one's country and nationalism all the bad stuff? Well, no serious scholar that I know of nationalism actually takes that distinction very seriously. It's a very big part of the public debate. But the very same actions can look, can be described as patriotic or nationalist, depending on whether you like them or not, and what outcomes you think that they have. But to, to describe a phenomenon an ana analytically, um, it's important not to describe it based on its consequences, but to be able to describe the phenomenon in and of itself. Um, and love for one's country, um, uh, certainly can just be part of, of so patriotism um, can, uh, some research has shown, quite easily slide into nationalism when the circum when, especially when circumstances of threat arise. Um, the second question I get asked a lot is, 
wouldn't, isn't the ideal world one in which we don't have national identities at all, right? Why celebrate national identities? Why, um, why really promote them in some sense if um, the ideal world is one in which we all just are, um, our primary identities are ones that are based on our um, common humanity. Um, and the answer I give to that is that um, there's a lot of social psychology research that shows that human beings are, by their very nature, clannish, um, that they need communities, um, and that, in fact, the countries around the world that we've seen um, that don't have a national identity, that have come closest to not having a national identity, are not utopian, but in fact, very dystopian. And um, uh, what you see here is a picture of Somalia, um, where um, there is no uh, clear na national identity at all. So um, I go about this research, and as I said, I'm at the very beginning of this project, so this is a sort of uh, a relatively um, light on a lot of evidence, but I'm, um, I'm going to tell you about how I'm going about this research in, um, in three domains. So the first domain is that I'm looking at um, sort of to look at like for like, I'm looking at all countries that gained colonial independence in the um, 1940s and 50s and 60s, and looking at their founding constitutions and creating an index of inclusivity based on such questions as, does the preamble to the constitution, the part that begins with, we the people, um, is there a definition of the nation um, that mentions race, religion, uh, or region? Um, is there a religious or racial um, category that's required for to uh, either be at the head of state or to serve in an important distinction of government? And using these kinds of questions, I create an inclusivity index that um, I'm statistically looking at whether ha it has, that has a pattern with um, a whole bunch of databases that look at uh, democracy. So I'm in the process right now of putting that together. So that's the first way I do that. The second way that I do that, I investigate the relationship between nationalism and democracy, is that um, I'm looking at um, some experiments which show that when you um, look at, you ask individuals, um, how much are you willing to give to co-ethnics or co-religious, co-religionists in need? Um, and that when you actually prime individuals, for example, by showing them a national flag, they're actually, the diff they're, they're, everyone is more likely to give to their co-ethnics in most contexts. But when you prime them individuals by showing the national flag, they actually um, are less likely to want to give to, uh, they're, they're, they're equally likely to want to give to um, members of their nation. So it very much shows that nationalism is a force for solidarity. And the third way, and that's the one I'm gonna talk about um, a little bit more tonight, is that I'm looking at countries that are largely similar, so three sets of countries um, that are largely similar on those explanations I gave you, um, but that have very different national identities at their founding. And I trace over time whether and how those national identities get used in moments of crisis. So what I'm gonna to talk to you about tonight is about two of those countries, which are India and Myanmar. Um, and that's what the map up there is, um, in case you were wondering what that is. So India and Myanmar, as I said, were both part of, um, they're very similar on many of those major, actually I think all of those eight, uh, major explanations of democracy. They were very um, relatively poor, um, hugely ethnically diverse, part of the same British colonial regime until 1937 when Myanmar, then Burma, was cleaved off um, to create uh, a separate, a separate uh, political entity. Um, and these two countries have had very different trajectories in terms of democracy. And I'm gonna unpack that a little bit and talk about both their founding national narratives and how those narratives have been used in moments of crisis. So India's uh, national narrative was based, is, was a highly inclusive founding nationalism um, that I argue had three components that I think are really, uh, that actually I've written about in my previous book that were important to the uh, creation of its democracy. 
points. The first is that it really rejected caste hierarchies. So I don't know how much many of you know very much about India, but prior to um, the nationalist movement that was led by, by Gandhi and Nehru, among others, um, caste completely saturated Indian society. Um, who you ate with, where you walked, where you drank your water from, who you married, all of that was determined by caste. So this was um, highly unequal in a society and about the most infertile social territory I can think of for democracy. But under um, the nationalist movement led by Gandhi, there was a very clear rejection of caste hierarchies within the national identity. So it's not that it rejected it entirely, um, but that within the nation, uh, caste was not at all a central tenet of defining uh, the national identity. Here what you see is a picture of Gandhi in front of the Sabarmati um, ashram. And here he was really, he asked members of Congress, many of whom actually were high caste at its founding, to come to this ashram to clean their own toilets, to eat together. Um, those were things that had never been done um, and on a wide, on a large-scale um, basis in Indian society before. So it was a national that very much rejected caste hierarchy. Second, it was a secular nationalism. Um, although it's a majority um, a Hindu country, it did not use nationalism, uh, religion as the basis for creating the national identity. So what you see here is the symbol of the Indian national, uh, the, the Indian national flag, uh, flag being the kind of the most visible, visible symbol of the nation. Um, and initially, these colors, orange, white, and green, represented respectively um, the uh, Hindu uh, majority, the Muslim minority, and then a range of, mi of other minorities. Um, as you can see, they have equal place um, in, in, the, um, in the symbol of the nation. And the, the wheel you see at the center is actually a Buddhist wheel. So this is not, it was not a national identity um, that, that centralized religion in any um, uh, strong way. And finally, it centralized the right to um, non-violently dissent. If you, any of you know anything about India's nationalist movement, you probably know um, about this kind of, um, th this part of it, the, the Gandhi-led um, civil disobedience movement. This, by the way, is not an actual picture of a moment. Um, it's a picture from the movie because no pictures were taken of that moment. But this is, um, this is where, when Gandhi had actually been jailed and the top nationalist leaders had been jailed, um, Gandhi actually asked his followers to go and collect salt um, uh, from a mill, um, which the colonial regime had a monopoly on. Um, and um, this was really, uh, as many of the mass uh, civil disobedience movements were, was a movement that, um, that uh, said that, or that centralized the right to protest an unjust um, set of policies. Um, so India creates its democracy. It's a surprising democracy. I'm very happy to talk about that circumstances. And again, that's the subject of a book I've already written. But what I'm interested in now is looking at moments of crises. And in 1975, coincidentally the year I was born in India, um, India um, has a uh, democracy um, is really in crisis. Along all those three dimensions I told you about, India's um, democracy sees a precipitous fall. So Indira Gandhi, the daughter of its first prime minister, jails um, political opponents, she muzzles the press, um, she postpones elections. My mother, interestingly, received, a, um, who was a, an outspoken critic of, the, of, of Indira Gandhi, um, actually received um, a threatening um, letter in which she said foreigners can also be arrested um, in Indira Gandhi's um, India. And um, um, so this was a moment where um, actually um, some of the databases which look at democracy, um, this is actually among established democracies, the biggest single fall in one year in that database. So it's, it's a crisis. Um, but interestingly, um, in January 1977, that crisis ends with a little bit of a surprise because Indira Gandhi calls elections. And um, so this is a kind of uh, democratically elected leader, autocratically begun to overreach, calls elections, and what happens? So that's the moment I'm really spending time researching. What happens in the eight weeks between when political opponents are released, um, uh, the political, um, political opposition comes together under United Front to try to unseat um, the incumbent in Indira Gandhi? 
And I argue, I'm going to argue, and this is my first case study, that the opposition movement really weaponizes this inclusive conception of India's nation to unseat um, Indira Gandhi's government. So uh, these are relatively, these are um, votes that are, are quotes that are relatively um, representative of what the kinds of things that the opposition says, which is that the opposition movement is even more important than the freedom movement, the nationalist movement, because today all our freedoms are gone and the only difference is that we have our own ruler were fundamental rights ever suspended during British rule. And another, another uh, quote which centralizes um, uh, you know, the, 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 the teachings of Gandhi. And so what I did is I looked at centrist newspapers in, um, and, and coded every word the opposition said that was recorded in these newspapers in those eight weeks, and this is the result of that. And what you can see, Congress and Janta are the names of the political parties that were in opposition, so it's not surprising that those were the most frequently uttered words. But when you leave the names of the parties aside, you notice that words like India, people, country, actually are very common themes in what the opposition is saying. Uh, Gandhi, actually also here, which you see up there, uh, or actually up there, um, is, uh, refers not to Indira Gandhi, who is referred to as Indira, but to Gandhi, the founding father. So I really am writing that in this moment, in India's kind of greatest democratic crisis to date, nationalism is used as actually a force to protect its democracy. And Myanmar, by contrast, has a very different story. Myanmar has, um, founding nationalism centralizes not only the Buddhist religion, but the Burmar um, ethnicity. Here's a picture of the Burmese king um, addressing um, some monks. Um, this is Burmese king before he was deposed in the Anglo-Burmese um, uh, Anglo War of 1886. And what's sort of so interesting about this picture to me is that, I don't know how well you can see it, but the, here's the king standing in front of a collection of monks. And it's not the king that's sitting resplendent in a throne like, uh, like Circe in Game of Thrones, but it's actually the king is standing there on a lower platform. You can see that the monks are sitting on an elevated platform. Um, uh, it's the king that's standing and the monks that are sitting. Um, so who is really paying respects to whom or who is, is uppermost in, in the hierarchy um, is at least unclear here. And I would argue that it's very much um, the Buddhist monks. And that's because um, really from time immemorial, um, Buddhism, uh, the Burmese king's right to rule has been on the basis that he is the protector of Buddhism. And the Burmese nationalist movement really did very little to change that. Here um, in 1906 and in 1933, the earliest um, rumblings of the Burmese nationalist movement were really movements that protected the religion and um, argued that Burma was for the Burmans, that is the Burmese ethnic identity. And there was a brief moment in 1947 when the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, General Aung San, tried to change this and met with a number of the, um, of the leaders of various ethnic groups that are in the geographic periphery of Burma, so very much on the rim there of, of what is modern-day Myanmar. But that was, very, uh, that was a very brief moment, and it was quashed when he was assassinated um, later that same year, uh, along with a number of the other nationalist leaders. And Burma then came, uh, received its independence in 1948 under a prime minister that very much continued to centralize these themes of uh, Burma for the Burmans and of the Buddhist national of Buddhism as centrally defining the Buddhist uh, the Burmese national identity. So, in fact, you did it. You see that. Um, Things like the State Religion Promotion Act were central, again, a part of, of how uh, the Burmese regime functioned, even under this early period of democracy. That early period ends with a military coup of 1962, which is, um, continues to be, um, uh, which puts Burma under non-democratic rule um, for over, well over 20 years. Now, in 1988, um, there is a mass uprising against the military regime. 
And uh, this leads to um, uh, a concession to hold elections. And if any of you know much about, if any of you know anything about Burma, you probably know this story of Aung San Suu Kyi. She was here in Burma at the time, ho um, nursing her sick mother. And it's at that moment when she decides to set up the National League for Democracy, this pro-democratic movement. And she contests elections in 1990. She wins her party, the National League for Democracy, wins about 85% of the vote. But a few months after um, those elections are held, the military comes again, quashes uh, that tentative democratic experiment. So in, um, in 2007, that's when you see the real democratic opening. And it's not a surprise where you see a real democratic opening coming after Buddhist monks are actually the ones to protest. And you see in the 1988, it's actually primarily students who are protesting. So when the kind of core signifier of the nation turns their, their begging bowls upside down, that's when you see a real democratic opening and the military regime says, we've got to start now um, really uh, conceding a roadmap for democracy. Um, and in 2015, they hold elections where Aung San Suu Kyi um, earns, and her National League for Democracy earns virtually the same percentage of votes. I was actually a, uh, an observer in those elections for the Carter Center. So these, um, this is a moment where you get, after a long arc of military rule, you get a real democratic opening. But um, the key crisis would say is not one that's in the past for Burma, for Myanmar, but it's the crisis that we're seeing today that begins in 2017 with the military systematically um, uh, um, expelling, some people would, would, would say, some human rights observers would say committing genocide against um, the Rohingya. Human Rights Watch currently calls the Rohingya the most persecuted minority in the world. And a real puzzle for many observers has been why Aung San Suu Kyi, this Nobel Peace Prize winner, has not spoken out against these kinds of atrocities. And the reason, I would argue, um, and I think if close observers of Burmese politics, very few of them would, would really substantially disagree with this, is that the, because the Burmese national identity is so closely defined with, with Buddhism, it's very hard for her to speak out against the forces of Buddhism, or the, the, the Buddhist organizations that, um, that have been in, in many ways calling for this as a way to um, centralize their, their, um, their political power in the regime. So I hope what this contrast has shown you is that in one case we've had a highly inclusive sense of the nation, highly inclusive nationalism that was in one case used to protect democracy, whereas a highly exclusive uh, nationalism um, has been a force for undermining it. Um, and the reason I, I, I want really to to undertake this research project is because um, we live in a world of nation states and nationalism is here to stay. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. And that's because in the words of Ernst Renan, one of the earliest um, uh, scholars of nationalism, the cult of the ancestor is a hugely legitimizing resource. But if nations are imagined communities, I hope that in some sense that's a hopeful message because if they're imagined, they can be reimagined. And I hope that some of you who, in the earlier, as we began the evening, were not, didn't, weren't unwilling to think of yourselves as nationalists can be a part of the conversation and making nationalism a force for democracy. So I will stop there. Let's uh, bring these out. And Margaret, if you want to come on the stage, there you are. So we'll have the conversation now. Uh, just a reminder, be thinking about your questions because we want to hear your questions as well. And uh, also just a shout out to our members who are watching and listening on the live stream. You can also, hi, you can also uh, put in your questions. Uh, just use the chat box. We'd love to get some questions also from live stream. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you. Mike. Oh, can we do that? <laughs> I'll yell, idea. but. <laughs> and as I said, I tend to wave the mic around. I'm not very good at this. I usually. 
I'll try to keep it under control and not hit you in the okay. face. Okay. <laughs> so Maya, that was great, but it does raise a lot of questions for me. <laughs> so I'd be disappointed if it didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't help but think about a variety of other contemporary situations that are going on, and particularly the U.S. And when I think about the United States and nationalism, I have to say that I don't think of it as necessarily being a resource for democracy. The U.S. fits all your definitions of something that was founded on very exclusive principles rather than inclusive principles and has continued to be dealing with those, that mm -hmm. sense of the ins and the outs, the marginalized, it's a racialized society, it's a sexist society, as are most. Mm -hmm. um, so how do, you, how do you bring that together with your view about nationalism as a resource for democracy? Right. Right. Especially looking at the current moment. Right. No. Um, it's actually the current moment that's in many ways got me to, to, to think about some of these questions. Good way, but I just didn't hold it. Right. So, so the way, so the U.S. is this really interesting case because in some ways it has a very inclusive founding creed in the sense that what's emblazoned on the Statue of Liberty, right, some, some of the, the founding creed of the nation is not, doesn't centralize religion, race, the creed. Now, we also know, three-fifth compromise, um, that blacks were not thought, thought of. So it ha it's, it's in, in the kind of spectrum of inclusive to exclusive, um, I think as Roger Smith has argued, it's this kind of, this kind of hybrid, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of hybrid national identity. But it's because you have, at least in, you have it, the possibility, because you have a creedal national identity at a, uh, to some extent um, at the founding of the United States that you have, um, I think, some of the, the greatest forces for greater freedoms in the United States have very much built and harnessed the legitimating power of those creeds. So I think you can draw a straight line from uh, kind of, uh, you know, these, we hold these truths to be evident that all men are created equal to Abraham Lincoln's um, most famous kind of words uttered at the Gettysburg Address that, you know, we, I, we, we, I am fighting this war essentially to make that founding American creed a, a reality to Martin Luther King, who stands of all the places he can stand in front of the Lincoln Memorial, echoing the words of Lincoln, you know, I, I, I have a dream that my children will see that, that all men that in this country, all men will at some point be created equal. Now, at some point, I hope we, we keep going down that arc of more inclusive, more inclusive, and you know, it's not now just men, now it's women, right? So I, but I do think that having the possibility of a creed that allows that, the, the sense of who's the in to expand in a way that if you have a uh, if you centralize a religious identity in particular, that has all these kinds of consequences, um, such as making um, those institutions that um, get, get to define who is a good member of that religion also get to define all but, of a sudden who's a member US of the nation. But the also a very good, I was, I was there, by the way, when Martin Luther King made that speech. I'm that old. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we were also in a sea of people who didn't agree with us. And it, to say that, the, that that creed is really what dominates in a place like the United States or in Britain or in a number of other of the democratic countries yeah. is to really miss a lot of the reality, which you have competing creeds. Right, right. I'm, so I'm not making an um, empirical statement that it does dominate. I'm saying that uh, in when you have creedal nationalisms compared to non-creedal nationalisms, that all things being equal, um, you're more likely to be able to protect democracy under circumstances in which the most legitimating ideology around, which is nationalism, I would argue, um, allows for um, uh, an ever-growing group of people to be included. Okay, let me push you in a slightly different direction because you're emphasizing the creedal elements. And when I think of nationalism, or patriotism for that matter, um, they usually come up in times of war or revolution. Mm -hmm. So there's something else going on that's also mobilizing, 
right? Mm -hmm. That the solidarity isn't just from the creed, it's also from a creation of a common yeah. enemy. Um, sometimes that enemy is created internally, sometimes it's the anti-colonial power, sometimes mm -hmm. it's a big international war. But I'm not hearing war play any of those kinds of wars, mm -hmm. and yet you told a story of an anti-colonial nationalism. Right. So I think the reason that nationalisms come up often in discussions of war is because war is a subset of a, it's a very severe kind of crisis, but it is a broad set of crises, and you don't always have to have crises through the form of war. You can have crises through crises of succession in um, monarchies. You can have uh, crises through uh, a, a, a democratically elected leader, like the story I told, that begins then to overreach. So I think when you have these crises, um, people look around, they cast around for ideas which help to legitimate their particular views. Um, I think that one thing that you're also, though, really getting at is that, um, you know, Power has to be organized before it can be used. So one thing that you know I, I didn't talk about as much in the Burma Indian example, but that I do talk about in my research elsewhere, is that you know you have to have an organized movement that espouses a particular view of a nation for that to be widely um, understood to become the conception of the nation. And then often it's um, educational curricula such as textbooks that pass those conceptions of the nation on. But I also think of a lot of these circumstances where, where the particular crisis, which is often a war or a revolution, yeah. um, sometimes some of the other things you were describing, when it passes, so does the nationalism, so does the resource. So what the mobilization was really about was not around the creed, but using that creed as a means to really mobilize people to fight. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's right, yeah. Okay. So we, we agree? Well, yeah, well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, because no, I think you're saying something different, and I'm trying to say that I'm not quite hearing it. Right. So that when, when to claim that nationalism is a resource for a democracy, or a resource can, can be. or can be, also suggests that it has a kind of persistence that right. I'm not hearing. Oh, right, right, okay. So the... I centralized in my talk the kind of founding moments, right? Because I looked at the set of countries which are um, in which the nation is a relatively new project, right? It's a it's a project that's been really it's a 20th century project, um, and uh, the fa founding moments often I think cast a long shadow. But that doesn't mean that that can't be reimagined. Um, I think you're right now seeing in India a moment of reimagining the national identity in more exclusive ways. I think after Germany's, um, uh, you know, after the Second World War in Germany, I think you've seen a movement to try to redefine the German national identity in ways that go away from the classic Blut and Boden that was uh, promoted under Bismarck and the Romantic movement to a, a much more kind of creedal base of nationalism. So it's not that nationalism's um, can't change over time, but I agree that there is a kind of lasting quality to them, and it absolutely gets invoked at times of crisis because it's a resource for legitimation. But I'm also suggesting that the nationalism has something to do with where that state is placed in the international system. So your example of Germany, mm -hmm. part of what created post-World War II German, what you're calling nationalism, and might be named something else, has a lot to do with the, the way in which Europe was developing and maintaining something that was distinctive mm -hmm. within that relationship. So it wasn't really about a resource that was calling on a common identity separate from the international sphere. Your, your elements are all endogenous, the word we use in yeah, political yeah, science, yeah. are all internal mm -hmm. to the kinds of factors that made up the state in the first place, right. as opposed to the international world in which it lived. Right. So I think Europe is a, is a pretty special case, though, of this, because most of the world is not Europe, where you know political scientists are want to, to quote is one particular um, scholar, Charles Tilley, who says, war makes the state, and the state makes war, right? So in the European project, the state um, is, is, is a very strong state that's selected through 
that's created by centuries of war making and war fighting, which essentially is, uh, selects for... the U.S. For, and Canada are different than that? So I think the U.S. and Canada are, are also older states, but the states that I'm looking at, in which the vast majority of the world's population lives, um, nas the national project and the state project is a very new project, and they happen chronologically in quite close proximity to each other. So, you know, one of, one of our Stanford colleagues, Anagraj Malabuse, is now looking at the dynamic of state um, uh, state evolution or the emergence of the state um, in Europe and really is arguing that the the church the competition between church and state is a central dynamic in defining European um, the European state and nation project but that is completely absent from nation building in much of the developing world because for the most part, religions aren't organized in the same way, and they don't certainly don't have sovereignty. So I think to you know we, we look you know I think when we look at the U.S. and focus on the U.S. and Europe, it, it's a it's I think a very um, it's it's a relatively narrow view of you know the here and the now to you know look at the think about the long but now. Think about China. Think about um, Africa. I mean, how do those nationalisms get created? Yeah, absolutely, in the same way. I think, yeah. Yeah. So, so Tanz, so one of the the other compared comparisons I'm looking at is um, Kenya and Tanzania, both countries which come into being very, very relatively similar times. Both are very multi-ethnic. Um, Kenya espouses a very ethnic-based form of nationalism, um, and Tanya, um, Tanzania under Nyerere. Uh, doesn't centralize ethnicity. Um, and today, when you look, I mean, they haven't had really different histories um, in terms of democracy, but when you look at moments of elections, scary it's Kenya. much scarier <laughs> in Kenya. And it's all around, in ethnic violence is what marks, because ethnic identities um, have been uh, elevated in the founding of the nation. And so I think that that is a resource. Um, other, the other uh, pairs of countries I'm looking at are um, Singapore and Malaysia, and I think some of those dynamics play out as well. So this is not just um, a South Asia story. I've deliberately chosen um, sets of countries from different regions of the world that look at how those dynamics play out. I just didn't have time to talk about all of them. I think it's time for the audience to have a chance to say something. Yeah, I have a question. Early on, you, you had mentioned you almost juxtaposed um, invention versus uh, imagination of nationality mm -hmm. or nationalism. And it seems like that doesn't necessarily take into account that national, nationalities actually evolved and became. Um, so you couldn't have it. If it was just in, invented, you wouldn't have national boundaries. And so since it's there, uh, doesn't that kind of degrade the fact that that you know nations actually have uh, beliefs that are um, unique to that nation and uh, different from other ones? And you know how does that compare to nationalism versus democracy? So, so the way that I think about this often is to revert to kind of cases in countries that I know. So you know in. 50 years before my German grandfather was born, Germany didn't exist as a nation. What it shared in common, what was, what was it to be German? Um, you know, it, there was an, a slow evolution of under Bismarck that what it meant to be German was that you spoke the German language. Um, but I would contest that there was a certain set of beliefs that Germany you know, held in common. There wasn't even a religion, right? Because it was essentially half-half in terms of Protestant Catholic. So maybe there are some countries which you can say have a set of beliefs, um, but I think those are often instantiated in founding creeds. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I struggle to see in my research um, that especially prior to the, the, the forces of nationalism sweeping the globe, which really happens, begins to happen in the 18th century and, um, and gains a lot of steam in the 19th and 20th centuries, that these groups of peoples um, have a national have national identities that are um, really uh, that are based on something other than um, you know this invented idea that we that we share something. Now, in some cases, um, I, I think uh, in Germany is a case of a country where you had as a nation before you had a state. But in other cases, like France and England, you had 
probably states before you had nations. So the, the way that that evolves is really different over space and time. Um, it's really hard to make one, you know, one generalization about what that pattern is. Hi, so what I really wanna take from your research is an idea that this pro-democracy nationalism inoculates against the anti-democracy nationalism. But when I think of the riots in Gujarat, which happened 20 years after independence and five years before the, the time period you're talking about and the rise of the BJP today, I can't take away that message. <laughs> so sort of what is, what is the message that I can take away about the difference yeah. and the interplay of these two types of nationalisms? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Much better said than what I was trying to get right, at. Right, right. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> so I guess what I would say is that the word inoculates is far too strong. Um, all the explanations that political scientists have for when democracy does or doesn't come about, they're all probabilistic explanations. They're not that's nothing, not um, a super diverse ethnic group, a super high level of economic development, nothing is, an abs is absolutely sufficient to become a democracy. So the claim that I'm making is that all else being equal, and of course nothing else is ever equal, right? Because countries are very particular um, and uh, spaces and time, or space and time specific creations, but that all else being equal, a relatively flat and open, porous conception of what it means to be a member of that nation is a resource for democracy because at subsequent moments of political crisis, when you have political entrepreneurs pushing to get to power, um, they, if there is, by contrast, a narrative of nation that, cre that specifically sets aside a group as not being core to defining the nation, that at moments of crisis, that particular group can be more easily targeted by politicians in power. And that's what you see happening um, with Muslims in uh, the Rohingyas in Myanmar. Um, it's what you see today happening in India um, and what you saw uh, when Modi was uh, the chief minister of Gujarat, which is when the riots that you mentioned happened, he was, he's very much been pushing a Hindu nationalist vision. And it's not a coincidence that's exactly where you saw the riots happening in India, because it's where the chief politician in power was pushing a majoritarian view of what it meant to be a citizen of that nation. So to go back to your question, what do I take away from this talk? It's not that anything inoculates democracy. I mean, democracy is only as strong as our belief in it and as our willingness to essentially make sacrifices on behalf of a particular way of organizing and sharing power. Um, but what I can say is that in addition to all those structural factors, which to make democracy a little bit more likely, so if you're a little bit wealthier, a little bit more likely. If you don't have oil and gas as a major part of your export, democracy is a little more likely. And what I want to add to the conversation is when you have a nationalism that's relatively egalitarian, it makes democracy a little more likely for the reasons I mentioned. Except that in all these cases, you have both kinds of nationalism pervading. Right. So I think that's another, Sorry, yeah. Your turn, but. Yeah. Yeah. So just briefly, I think that that was, that was a question I was sure I was going to get. <laughs> so, so how, you know, you're talking about one nationalism. There are lots of kinds of nationalism. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, founding moments um, provide particularly powerful narratives of what the nation is. But of course, those na narratives are contested and changing over time. But it, 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 they're often surprisingly durable. And um, what you see happening in India right now is a sustained attempt to change what the national identity is. And to the extent that it endures, it's in power, it begins to change national curriculums, which you know, is exactly what we're seeing, um, that will become a resource for essentially um, promoting one form of democratic breakdown, which is when those civil and political liberties are systematically um, denied to the outgroups. I wanted to say, um, I mean, there are all these structural elements that need to be in place that are very fragile when they fall apart. But I'm wondering, you brought up this phrase, common humanity, and then sort of went by it. And I'm thinking that that's actually the, one of the most important elements in thinking about democracy per se, because that's not an idea which was common 
until the 18th century. It's a particularly Western idea, which isn't holding up all that well in the West anymore, certainly not in this country. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the sense that there is a common humanity actually is indigenous to the cultures, to the nations that you're studying, because it seems a particularly Western idea which has been exported, but may not find fertile soil in a place like India or Myanmar. Yeah, but you know, India has, um, so Amartya Sen has written this wonderful book called An Argumentative Indian, in which he talks, he sort of roots democratic practices um, far back in Indian history. Um, now, I think this is a little bit of smoke and mirrors actually, uh, because Look, I think most societies for most of human history have been you know, deeply hierarchical um, organizations. So I think you're right that democracy is this relatively new um, set of practices. Now, you know, leaving aside the kind of ancient Greeks, which of course had some very limited form of democracy, but you do have, um, you know, I, I, think a par I think it would be hard to say that, um, it's hard to root democracy in India because, you know, India has been a democracy um, for really the 70 plus years since independence, and I think a very well established one. So I think it, it, it is the example that shows us it is possible to have democracy in very different kinds of contexts. But I think one of the things that makes it this kind of very fragile, um, egalitarian power sharing arrangement possible is a sense that we are all in some sense as citizens equal. And that's where my research is trying to enter the conversation. Thank you. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll have one more question. Thank you, this, is, this has been wonderful, guys. Uh, one more question right here. Hi, that was a great talk. Thank you. Um, so I have two questions, and the second one may not have anything to do with your research work at all. So forgive me for that one. Sure. So the first is um, if you've at all compared Pakistan and Bangladesh as, as two, well now, two nation states, um, and very similar in their foundation, but took very different paths, very different paths. Um, so I wonder what you have to say about that. Um, and then. The second question, which may not be relevant, is um, yes, India gained independence and then formed a nation state, which didn't exist as, as it exists today, it didn't exist before, but it did have Mughal rule for centuries, mm -hmm. much like the colonial rule. And I wonder if, if you've thought about what caused um, the set of movers, the political entrepreneurs, as you call them, to move in the direction that they did um, at the end of the British colonial era, but not before. So what was, what was so different about those two colonial rules? And I call them two colonial rules. So what was, in, what was in the nature of, of how they ruled, perhaps, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you have anything to say about that? Well, it's almost like I planted those questions because those are ver perfectly answered by my, I mean, those are, those are the questions of my first book, um, which ask why does India look so different from Pakistan, which then becomes Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, and in a minute, the, the core argument of that book is that um, the elites leading the nationalist movements uh, of these countries are both completely self-interested, and they push a vision of the nation that essentially they can in order to access greater political power. But that in one case, of the colonial elite, they're very much, um, the, the, sorry, the colonial, the new urban educated middle class that goes to the colonial institutions of, of education. They see their power being advanced by pushing for more representative institutions because they're not represented in the colonial institutions, whereas uh, in Pakistan, it's the landed aristocracy for the large part that is very much tied up in the colonial regime. So they see their power as being protected by pushing against democratic institutions. Um, and in the process, they build very good, different kinds of political parties. So that's the core argument of the book. And it very much talks about, uh, I think it has a lot of resonance in the kinds of regimes you see, both in Pakistan, to a lesser extent Bangladesh, because it's a slightly different story. Um, I, I think a, a sort of hybrid of a more inclusive one than Pakistan and a less exclusive one than India. So, and I think that's also relevant to your second question, which is how do I think of the Mughal and the colonial empires as um, 
as conditioning the emergence of the nationalist movement. So I think it does so in very, in very interesting ways because the, the, the pox on nationalist movement is led by um, elites who are sitting and the erstwhile head of the colonial, of uh, the Mughal Empire. So they're in a particular part of, of what is then um, United Provinces and what is today Uttar Pradesh. Right, so those, so it's it's that region that gives rise to this um, this this movement for Pakistan, um, and it's they um, it's they're they're, that the fact that their interests are closely bound up with the Mughal regime and then with the colonial regime that leads them to resist calls for greater representative institutions, and by contrast, that pushes this new elite who would very much benefit from it. Um, towards newly, um, towards more representative political institutions. Thank you, Maya. Let's have a big round of applause for both <laughs> Margaret and Maya. Um, and, and I want to mention it's popped up uh, a couple times, but your first book is The Promise of Power, The Origins of Democracy in India and Autocracy in Pakistan. Yes. And that's still in print. I'm seeing it here on Amazon. So it's, yes. it's, uh, <laughs> so, so look that up if you want to do it. Um, as, uh, as always with our speakers in this series, uh, Margaret and Maya are going to be sticking around. So we hope that you uh, here in the audience will stick around, continue the conversation. I know there are a bunch more questions in the audience and uh, we still have some work to do to figure out nationalism completely. So let's do it before we leave the room tonight, right? Um, one last thing um, to thank uh, both Maya and Margaret for being on our stage. This is a long now challenge coin, which we like to give to our speakers. Margaret is earning multiple at this point. Uh, thank you again. It's great to have you back. Um, and yeah, we really appreciate it. This is a, a timely conversation and a, a peek at uh, work that is still in progress. So it's exciting to see where this will go. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Let's give one more big round of applause for Maya Margaret. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.